This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Hello, and welcome back to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Stephen Kent, and today you're listening to a continuation of our interview series. Uh, Every couple of weeks, I speak with someone in politics about their Star Wars fandom, and we have had some great conversations up to this point uh, with Star Wars fans living the politics life. We started with Kristen Soltis-Anderson. She hosts the Pollsters podcast. Uh, She's the author of The Selfie Vote, and if you were watching ABC's uh, Newsnight election coverage um, the other day, she was on the panel all night. Um, Really cool. Um, I talked about nerddom and all things Star Wars with Tamara Keith, uh, the White House correspondent for NPR. She's also the co-host of NPR Politics. And most recently, I chatted with Eric Geller, a reporter for Politico, uh, Jason Sane, a North Carolina House representative. And today, you're hearing my conversation with Seth Maskett, a political science professor at the University of Denver. Uh, he's the author of The Inevitable Party, and he's also the founder of The Mischiefs, Mischiefs of Faction. Um, Seth is a uh, frequently published writer on Huffington Post, Vox, Politico, and more. And he is a well-known Star Wars fan in the world of politics and uh, a good commentator on this. Um, the Mischiefs of Faction, which he put together, is a property of Vox, and they have done a lot of writing in the past on the politics of Star Wars. Um, and Seth is a guy who thinks about this topic a great deal, um, and his writing on it has been really fantastic. So coming across a lot of it, um, just in my pursuit of my uh, my usual binge of Star Wars politics reading, um, his name kept coming up, so I eventually reached out and uh, we were able to connect on this. Very excited about sharing that with you. Um, He offers a great deal of insights on the political systems um, of our world and also the Star Wars world and kind of where they do and and do not line up. Um, Seth makes a really good case for why the politics of Star Wars don't really make that much sense um, and how in some ways it might be by design. Uh, Now, I taped this interview a few weeks ago, um, and a lot has changed in the world since then. Um, The election is over. Yeah. Um, We're going to dig into the election results and some Star Wars stuff that sort of surrounded the end of the election um, on next week's uh, normal taping of an episode. So we'll be doing that this weekend. And that will come out uh, Wednesday afternoon or Thursday morning um, of next week. So for today, you can focus on some other things and get to know Seth Maskett of Mischiefs of Faction. Uh, and just as a quick disclaimer, I um, had to do this interview from like a, a closet at my work. And there were, there were some weird feedback issues with the microphones just in the first couple of minutes, a little bit of a popping noise. So... I uh, hope that doesn't bother you too much, and it will pass as the uh, the interview goes on. So without further ado, Seth Maskett. Now, Seth, um, I'm going to queue up a little bit of your biography in the pre-show, but feel free to tell people a little bit about yourself. What do you do, and what is your background? So I'm a political scientist at the University of Denver. Um, I'm the department chair here in poli-sci. Uh, I've been a political scientist. Well, I've been a professor for about a uh, little over 12 years. I was in grad school at UCLA before that, and uh, before that, I worked in uh, campaigns in government for a while. I worked on a number of campaigns. Uh, I worked for a number of years in the Clinton White House uh, in in the correspondence office, answering mail, writing 
One of my one of my first exposures to your writing was I had seen your piece in NPR that the uh, the politics of Star Wars make no sense. How long have you been writing and engaging on Star Wars culture? So I've done it on and off for many years now. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to grad school with uh, a cohort that we, we were all pretty obsessed both with politics and Star Wars, mm-hmm. um, and we, it was nice to have that. Uh, uh, you know, kind of a support group in many ways. Uh, we and our families all went to see um, uh, The Phantom Menace together when it first came out in 99. Uh, it was a big moment. We had lots of discussions about it. We worked through all the details of that. And so we have all uh, stayed in touch over the years. And uh, some of us now all write together for a blog called Mischiefs of Faction, okay. which is part of Vox.com. Um, and so when... So last year, when uh, Force Awakens was coming out, we all wrote, a number of us wrote a number of posts related to that, just trying to work on, uh, just kind of work out some of the details of the politics of Star Wars. And we found, in, in some ways, it's, it's a real challenge, because they're, you know, in some ways, they're, they're clearly movies with politics in them, particularly the prequels are very political, mm-hmm. but the politics are obviously not very well thought through. Um, the descriptions of government are pretty vague, and yet clearly George Lucas wanted us to be thinking about political issues. He made many of his main characters important government officials. They were, you know, leaders in the Jedi Order. Some of them were senators. Some of them were leading the Senate. So uh, I felt like as vague and as, and as apparently poorly thought out it was, it at least warranted some attention and discussion. So I've, I've been writing about this on and off for a number of years. Are you fully blog also? did a couple of pieces on, uh, you know, the decision to build the Death Star, the apparent cost of the Death Star. That's a, that's a discussion I love to have. Oh, I'm, I actually have tabled the cost of the Death Star conversation for another time, but I really want to have that with you at some point. With okay. the, with the intent of Lucas, I mean, do you find, um, negligence in that narrative or do you find an intentional design to be a little vague and leave room for interpretation um we talked a little bit about this last week and the general consensus among a lot of fans is that um that star wars is unquestionably a liberal and progressive tale and there's there's really no room for wiggle in that space i mean do you think that george lucas had a vision or do you think he just failed to meet his vision original trilogy there was a political story there but you know just a, kind of a vague one about there was once a good government it had been destroyed and corrupted and you know somehow an, uh, a disorder had to be brought back to order something some imbalance had to be righted and there were little references to a senate to regional governors and things like that but he kept it pretty vague and that I thought was fine. It didn't have to be much more specific than that. Uh, with the prequels, though, he was clearly getting very specific. And the, you know, particularly the descriptions and the depictions of the Galactic Senate, um, those are thought through and I think are very poorly done. Um, you know, not to, it's not like there's a lot of great depictions of legislatures and politics out mm-hmm. there. Uh, you, you know, you could probably count the number of films that have been made in the last 20 years that actually depict legislative voting on, on two hands. Uh, but even given that, I mean, these are, you know, I think he was intending to tell a specifically political story, and uh, I, I think he kind of failed on that front. 
When you look at the structure of the Galactic Senate, do you see more of an international body as we think of it in the U.S., um, you know, being the U.N., or do you see a attempt to replicate something familiar to us like Congress? It's a bit of a mix, honestly. I mean, you could see certain parallels to the U.N., or I've seen others describe it as like the Articles of Confederation, hmm. uh, you know, an early attempt at government in the U.S., where... Uh, you have some of the problems where basically everyone has equal representation, no matter how big or small a star system is, they have the same vote. Uh, they're very weak. They're easily brought down. They require consensus that just seems hard to achieve. Uh, so I, I think it's a kind of mix, but it was also an attempt to show something like Congress, you know, and I, I think Lucas was trying to tell, you know, in some ways it's a, he's telling a parallel of, uh, politics in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Speaking I mean, of rep- representation and and who actually has a say in the Senate, have you come to a conclusion of any kind on what it means that uh, Queen Amidala can come to the Senate and call for a vote of no confidence in a legislative leader um, when she is not technically the representative um, of her body, that you know, Palpatine is the representative for Naboo? How can she come in and pull a, a mandate like that. I think, honestly, that's the biggest flaw of uh-huh. this, this depiction of a legislature. The fact that you can have a non-member who can come in and call for a vote of no confidence in the chamber's leadership and send the whole chamber into a, into a crisis. I mean, this is, a thing, this is a government that allegedly has lasted for either a thousand years or a thousand generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing wouldn't last a thousand hours with those kind of rules. I mean, that's... that's <laughs> really shockingly poor design. And also the fact that she can just do that. There doesn't even seem to be a roll call vote. People just chant. Uh, vote now. Vote now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, on top of that, you know, there doesn't seem to be any way that this chamber is really organized. Anyone can speak whenever they want. Someone speaking, someone else can interrupt them. I mean, it's amazing they have any conversations at all. What what bodies in the world do you think actually replicate that look and feel, though? Of course, sort of a chaotic body where there's a lot of voices who are able to speak. Is that something that is familiar for other countries outside of the U.S.? Uh, you know, I'm not a, an expert on legislatures in that many other countries, but generally speaking, no, this is, this is not functional. I mean, what you see in, for one thing, what you see in most legislatures is a pretty strong party structure. Hmm. Uh, where there is, you know, pretty clearly defined uh, majority and minority party. The majority will decide what's on the agenda for the day. They will control who gets to speak and when. There's usually some kind of order for it. You know, sometimes you can see in some parliaments uh, where people end up in fistfights because they just disagree on things. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, one parallel I was trying to draw was this was sort of like the Nebraska legislature, only more floating going on. Um, yeah, tell me about that. <laughs> no, Nebraska has, it's, it's a nonpartisan legislature. There's no official majority and minority party there. The speaker is elected on a secret ballot. Um, they're able to actually maintain some sort of order, though. The speaker maintains pretty tight control over who gets to speak and when, and decides what's in order and what isn't. And you don't really see that in, in the Galactic Senate. Do you think that they're the message of the prequels, talking about the intended political message? I think one of the only things that he did manage to get through crystal clear 
was ideas about money and politics. Uh, we see that with the Trade Federation, the banking clan, um, and all of these interests that ended up making up the separatist movement, um, who in a lot of ways, I think, have been rightly interpreted as, as a sort of anti-tax movement, um, that they don't want to be held accountable by the rules of the republic, or at least the policy of the republic. Um, do you think that he stuck the landing there and connected with people in a way, or do you think that it still didn't quite hit home for you as a political scientist? Well, there was something he did with that that I think it wasn't very accurate, but it reflected what a lot of public concerns about government are, that there's just some sort of vague sense of corruption, mm. that there's money floating around, that there's some shadowy groups that have influence that other people don't have, and it's not very clear what the source of that is. You know, uh, right after, or excuse me, right before Amidala calls for the vote of no confidence, uh, you see Palpatine whispering in her ear. I think they're talking about, um, what's his name, Mazameda. I know you guys have disagreed on the pronunciation there. Yeah. He seems to be whispering in uh, Chancellor Valorum's ear something that it's not quite clear what it is, but uh, Palpatine is saying, oh, now we see the real power, the bureaucrat. And I don't think George Lucas knows what a bureaucrat is, or at least he didn't at that time. Um <laughs> I think he was trying to say, no, the real power is in lobbyists or the real power is in some sort of shadowy influence uh, that we're not quite clear what it is. Yeah, so they, they really can't make up their minds in the narrative of these movies about whether or not the problem is outside influence or inside influence. Um, right. there, there's a little bit of a, of a, of a conflicting narrative there where again, he's referring to like moneyed interests as bureaucrats, but really, I guess what he's created in star Wars is the perfect marriage of people's concerns where you hear people talk about, well, Oh, you know, well, lawmaker A or B should wear a sponsorship tag on them, like a NASCAR driver, um, thinking about who is bankrolling their campaigns and, you know, quote unquote, putting them in office, um, I think what he did in Star Wars was make the most literal form of that, which was he put the Trade Federation or like some sort of, um, you know, trade union in the Senate with their own vote. Um, I guess that's why I think it's viscerally appealing to people. You don't really have to think about much of the nuances of real world politics, but sort of get the worst possible picture in Star Wars, which is uh, trade interests who have a vote and then they are also the bureaucrats at the same time. And I think what you also see in there that perhaps is a little more accurate is that you have in Amidala someone who's trying to raise a legitimate interest. Uh, there are you know, there are people whose homes have been invaded, they're under attack, and people are not paying attention to it. She's trying to raise this as something that the government should address. And it's immediately being quashed by trade federation, by just sort of government uh, inertia or ineptitude. And someone says, well, you know, we can't just rush and do stuff. We have to have an investigative committee. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you see the same thing with the, uh, the Senate apparently turning a blind eye to slavery. Uh, mm -hmm. And is very surprised to learn that, you know, she's like, I thought slavery was outlawed. Just, well, no one really pays attention in these systems. Mm -hmm. um, so you see that, yeah, there are legitimate problems going on that the government seems to be ignoring uh, to the benefit of some of these shadowy insiders. And so there's, you know, that's a that's certainly a legitimate concern about government, I think, a point Lucas was trying to make. I, I think the one thing he was missing there, though, was that there didn't seem to be any media. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, Amidala saying, 
we're being invaded and other groups saying, no, we don't think they are. Uh, maybe we could, you know, send some investigative committee. And of course, this would be on news, right? Yeah, and where's, where's the hollow net? <laughs> exactly. And well, we know where they are. They're covering the pod races. I mean, there's plenty of media there. They're covering sports, but not politics. Well, Seth, as a, as a, yeah, I guess, where did Star Wars start for you? Um, what was your entry experience into the saga and the story? Uh, I think I was the perfect target demographic. I was uh, eight years old when the, the original movie came out. Uh, and I saw it with my family, thought it was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen, and then tried to see it again and again, and followed them all as they came out after that. So I had... I didn't have too many of the action figures myself, but uh, a lot of my friends did. I played with them all the time. We, you know, we fought over who got to be Luke Skywalker, who got to be Han Solo, and all that stuff. But. Putting putting yourself kind of in the mind of your childhood self, what do you think attracted you to the movie? Like, why do you think that you liked it so much as opposed to one of, one of your neighbors or one of your friends? Uh, it was just a big epic fantasy. I mean, it was just you know, we had plenty of of, uh, I, I guess, fantasy stories at the time, but there was just nothing that big and cool looking. I mean, just that moment when, at the very beginning, when you see the uh, the Imperial cruiser going after the rebel ship, you know, that was just like bigger and more exciting than anything I'd ever seen in my life at that point. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, just hard not to be swept up in that. And, you know, and so the sort of just the, the scale and, you know, the, the just exciting quality of that film that lasted a long time. But then, you know, as you get older, you start to see other things in it and they're surprisingly still very watchable films. And I've enjoyed actually introducing my kids to them. since They were little and kind of reviewing everything through their eyes and trying to turn them against the prequels and stuff like that. <laughs> you mentioned, you mentioned rediscovering the movie and seeing new things as, as an adult. Is the politics what sort of perked your interest as an adult in these movies, kind of rediscovering some of those subtexts? Or is it part of the parenting thing where you just really love to share it with people? Uh, well, it's kind of both. I mean, I, again, having this uh, this group of folks since grad school of people, you know, who we were learning intense stuff about politics at the same time as we will inevitably argue about um, Star Wars. Uh, it was fun to sort of plug those things in, like, okay, we're seeing, like, you have a, you've got kind of a federal system here, you've got a competition between a corrupt central government and these regional governments, and you've got issues of, of uh, force and compliance in here, you know, is it enough to have, like, one giant Death Star floating around the system, is that enough to uh, maintain order, or do you need actually sort of local regional things? I mean, there, you know, there's the politics of the films are vague enough that you can almost apply them to anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, they're certainly very useful that way. Who's your favorite character? Uh, gosh, it varies. <laughs> it will vary a lot. Um, I know, I know that feeling. Guy, actually. I kinda, <laughs> you said Lando? I, always, I love Lando. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, nice. I mean, you know, most prominent in Empire, which is my favorite of the film, yeah. and uh, you, the thing that I love most about that film is that characters evolve in it. Uh, you know, the way we see them at the beginning of the film is not the way we see them at the end. There's growth, uh, and he's in some ways the 
he is legitimately conflicted. Um, he has, you know, he's got friendship pulling him one way. He's got his own personal qualities pulling him in the other way. And he's actually trying to make a decision. He's just a, he's a, a complex character in a difficult place. And that's actually kind of the most interesting drama out there. I like that answer a lot. I've actually never thought of Lando on that plane before, but he really is sort of the everyman stuck in a really bad situation where you really, there's just no good way for you to get out of this. Yeah. Um, with, I mean, uh, I, I, I've not drawn this analogy before, but uh, if you take like uh, the movie Braveheart, yeah. Mel Gibson's film, which obviously focuses on the big hero, William Wallace, um, but in some ways that's a very simple character. And it's a great story, but like the really fascinating character is, is Robert the Bruce, the guy who you know has his titles to protect, he's got his interests to protect, but is also really interested in this rebellion and is torn uh, between one and the other. It's trying to figure out who he should be he has to betray someone. He's trying to figure out who that should be. With the new films coming out, um, did you have a generally favorable and uh, a generally favorable impression of Episode Seven and what it accomplished, or did it leave you sort of wanting more? Uh, I really enjoyed Episode Seven. I was very pleased. I mean, in many ways, I was more actually relieved. I was worried that it was going to suck, and uh, I mean, you know, wonderful trailers, but. Uh. You know, we all saw the Man of Steel trailers, and that didn't necessarily work out. So, um, no, R.I.P. Thrilled. It was a really enjoyable movie. It worked on a lot of levels. It was perhaps a little too much of a retelling of Episode Four, but mm-hmm. you know, if you just want to keep telling that story, I'm okay with that. It's a good story. Um, what about uh, Ro- no. what about Rogue One coming around the corner? We just got a brand new trailer this morning. Um, have you had an opportunity to watch that? So where where are you on the the hype meter? I'm pretty excited about that one. Uh, I like I guess the one of the details we got this morning was that somehow the main character's father is some sort of scientist who yeah. has apparently been captured and is being forced to work on the super weapon. Which like I think that comes right out of a lot of World War II thrillers. Yeah, that's like Cold um, War. You know, Soviet yeah. scientists abducting or being abducted and. All this yeah, stuff, yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, perfect. You know, keep telling that story. I'm, I'm happy with that. <laughs> it looks pretty good. Are you interested in all about what they will, I guess, tell us about how the rebellion is formed? Have you ever had any unanswered questions about the formation of the Rebel Alliance? Or has that never been something that really you thought about too much? Um, I am curious about it. I mean, I guess we get, we get sort of a little tease in one of those those uh, deleted scenes from episode three where you just see like, you know, you've got Padme and I guess you've got uh, a few of the other people, uh, you know, Bail yeah. Organa, others who will play a role in that rebellion. But at that point, there's still just kind of a, you know, kind of an out group in the Senate. Um, and I am sort of curious how, you know, how that evolves over the next decade and a half, I guess, um, into something like a rebellion. And I suppose there's more of that in, uh, the animated uh, Rebel series, which I've watched some of, but yeah. uh, you know, have somewhat of a harder time getting into. That's fair. I want to I want to talk real quick before we wrap up about go. I guess going back to the Senate because I think this is really one of the most interesting parts of Star Wars that I always need some more insight on to fully understand. Do you think that? People undervalue the way that our and I'm going to focus on just maybe. Well, we'll just do the Congress. How our Congress works, um, you know, the favorability is just in the absolute rock bottom. People don't trust what they're doing. They don't think they work. 
or they think they work too much and are just never agreeing on anything. Uh, do you think that our system is undervalued and underappreciated, or is there something to be said for there's a serious problem with the way that it works? Well, it's, it's possible both those things are true. Um, but I think, you know, generally what we, we have is uh, when, when people look at the Congress, they have two strong and very conflicting feelings about it. One is that they can't seem to get anything done. Um, and they should be doing more. They should be uh, they should be more productive. They should be able to agree on things, and they should come together and compromise for the good of the nation. And the other impulse is they better not compromise the things that I care about. And of course, one of those completely undermines the other. If you have 435 people who are each trying to advocate the things that you care about, the things that they care about, um, they're not going to agree on very much. And you know, they in most times can actually work past that, come to some sort of an agreement, but agreements and compromise are inherently disappointing in many ways, particularly for political activists. Um, and you have, in more recent years, a growth of uh, you know, the media, uh, talk radio in particularly, who that's inclined to portray any sort of compromise as a betrayal. Uh, betrayal of their values, betrayal of the, the, the whole American system. Um, and if you're hostile to compromise, you're basically hostile to the whole purpose of this thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I would think there there are significant problems when you have, you know, it, it's one thing when you have people out there believing that government can't seem to function and that it's, it's compromising too much. When you start having those people get elected to the government, and they're hostile to the very idea of actually getting things done, uh, that makes it very hard for government to function. And that is, I think, a significant problem we're facing right now. To finish up here, what do you think is the leading political message of Star Wars that we should take away as civic people? Wow, that's a good question. You know, it's, it's funny, because in some ways the politics are vague enough that both liberals and conservatives can claim <laughs> Uh, Star Wars as, as their ideal system. Should they uh, claim it? That's actually a, a quick side question. Should people claim Star Wars as inherent to their ideology, or should we be looking at it more as something that is meant to be broad? I, I think it is meant to be broad. It's the you know the heroes are always the ones who are pursuing freedom, right? Whatever that means. Yeah. Um, they seem to. Uh, but at the same time, they also seem to be pursuing, they want to restore an order that existed prior to a corrupt central government, uh, an overly strong totalitarian government. Mm -hmm. So they want to, you know, restore some sort of order, whatever that is. And, you know, that order wasn't necessarily all that great to begin with. Uh, you know, it was heavily dominated by the Jedi, who were this, like, mysterious religious sect. It was it had a lot of royalty to it, kind of uh, unelected inherited titles. Um, so I don't know. I guess if there, if there is sort of a central theme, it's just that the struggle is ongoing. There's never any definite victory for all time. Uh, we have to always sort of watch for corruption and failures within our own system and make sure that they don't blow up into full-scale civil wars and that... You know, there's never really a moment where everyone lives happily 
politics and the work of government is, is ongoing. Seth, thanks so much for your time and coming on Beltway Banthas. Um, really hope to have you on again in the future. Uh, there will surely be more material down the road to dig into with this franchise. I would love to come back. This has been fun. Great. Thanks, Seth.